You're listening to Raw with Marty Gallagher, J.P. Bryce, and Jim Steele, brought to you by Iron Company. If you enjoy our podcast, please share the link and give us a review. Here with us today out of Nashville, Tennessee, is Iron Tamer Dave Whitley, professional strongman, motivational speaker, coach, and author of the book, Superhuman You. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yep, you got it. Hey, Marty, this is a first for us, a performing strongman, a tad different than strength entertainment that the uh, great Kurt Kowalski refers to. How do you guys know each other? Dave. Dave. Yes. When did we meet? We met initially in, I think, about 2005 at the... Uh, one of the kettlebell competitions in its early incarnation in somewhere in Maryland, I think. And it was just a, Hey, how you doing? Shake hands and move on about our business. And that was also the same weekend that I met Bud Jeffries who tragically passed away two weeks ago. Um, And then we actually connected at an event around the time that you were, it was right after a purposeful primitive and you did the, the workshop. Um, with uh, who else was there? Pavel was there. Bud was there for that. I think Dan John was there and got to got to meet you and and like actually hang out and spend some time with you. And then I wound up coming to a, um, a seminar that you and um, Kirk did where we went over the four big lifts. And that was right. my um, my full on introduction into the the Marty Gallagher methods and principles and, and how all of it works uh, from a live perspective. I've read purposeful primitive prior to that that's hard to say but um it was really cool to go through that experience and that, that same weekend i got to go visit um slim the hammer man so it was a very strong weekend for me <laughs> now t- tell us about slim he's a he's an important figure in your life so why don't you just walk us through why and how slim is an incredibly important figure in my life and actually he uh, he passed away last november at the age of 87 i believe it was um as a performing strongman, my primary mentor is a guy named Dennis Rogers, who anyone who follows strongman, steel bending, that kind of stuff, performing strongman, not competitive strongman, will probably know who Dennis is. And Dennis's mentor was Slim the Hammerman. And Slim's mentor was the mighty Adam, who died in 1977. But Slim, um, I met him probably 2009 or so for the first time. And he was... Um, it was an association old time barbell and strongman banquet dinner. And I had um, gone there for the first time and, you know, Dennis made introductions for me and everything, but he, uh, he was a towering figure, both in his physical stature and his um, hand strength and leverage lifting sledgehammers, steel bending, all a, that give stuff. It, give us a couple of examples. Um, well, he um, set and still holds um, a world record for a two hammer um, leverage lift. So the hammers are connected at the handle. There's 57 and a half pounds of weight on the end of a 31 inch set of handles. And they're lying on the floor horizontally. And he would uh, hold on to them with both one and one in each hand, um, pivot them up to a vertical position using hand and wrist strength and then stand up, hold his arms out horizontal to the ground and lower the hammers down, touch the, his forehead or his nose with them and lever them back up 57 and a half pounds on the end of 31 and a half inch or 31 inch handles is somewhere in the neighborhood between 1050 and 1100 um, 
um, PSI of torque. So mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of hand and wrist strength going on there. Um, other stuff that he did, he would, he would, you know, drive nails through boards with his fist, uh, bending, uh, 60 penny nails, like, like nothing, uh, uh, bending longer pieces of steel into scrolled artistic shapes. He was one of the most <laughs> creative artistic steel benders that's, that's ever gotten into the game, taking pieces of, uh, uh, flat steel, like three eighths inch thick by one inch wide and twisting them up into these. <clears throat> Uh, really interesting really intricate beautiful scrolled shapes uh, on purpose there's like two different ways to approach that there's grab a piece of steel and see what it'll do and then there's also the way slim did it was get a piece of steel plot out in your mind what it's going to look like when you're done and then figure out how to bend it to your will literally until you get that shape so phenomenal iron, phenomenal iron, iron picasso Yes, yes. But probably the most important thing I got from him was the mental aspect of stuff. I had gone to visit him. It was actually that same trip I was talking about earlier where I where I did the seminar right, with you, Marty. Before you skip too far ahead here, I want to sure. ask you a couple of things about this. Um, torque. Okay, so is, is was his strategies teachable or was it that he was just kind of a super freak? Um, it was both. He, he was a very good, um, technician and he was very knowledgeable and understanding about what was going on. Um, what would you describe it? Hand strength? Yeah. Hand I mean, and wrist what, strength. What, yeah. Hand and wrist strength. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. Right. And also the idea of the lever. I mean, that takes tremendous shoulder strength. Yeah. To just, to right. just, to just hold nearly 60 pounds. Yeah out in front of you with your and arms think, parallel to yeah, the no, ground as a feet man, himself. I, don't think, I don't know if I could do that in my best day. I doubt it. I mean, I couldn't do that. Oh, no way. Up, <laughs> you know, who's been, you know, who's been doing some of that is uh, Brad Gillingham. He sends me a video once in a while right? been using sledgehammers. What, what, what and stuff. would Brad do? What, what would Brad do? You know what? I don't know what the weight was. 100, but 120 I, times. Yeah. <laughs> some phenomenal. What is he doing, what is he doing with it? Well, he's doing like levers and he's doing uh, where you, you, you let it come down to your forehead and then bring it back up. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, all that hey, stuff. He's a strong about, man. What about the genesis of all this, Dave? How did, how did you get it? I mean, what, you know, you just woke up one day and decided, I know you, you, uh, you know, you admired superheroes and all that stuff coming up. But when did you really start doing the strong man stuff? Yeah. How, how uh, old are you, Dave? How old are you? I'm 52. Okay. Okay. And so as a kid, I know, you know, I was just reading some of your bio about, you know, you had a, a bad stutter and you, you know, you were into the superhero books. That was like an insulate, you know, insulate yourself from the outside or sure. did you yeah. just admire that? Yeah, that was my retreat. Um, yeah. And I, re I really identified with the Hulk back then when I was, you know, seven or eight years old. And around yeah, yeah. that same time was when Lou Ferrigno was on television as the Hulk and seeing him on TV in my little eight-year-old mind or however old I was yeah. flipped a switch that, that took being huge and strong and powerful and all of those things that I was enamored of. It took that from the comic book page of fantasy and, you know, slapped me in the face real world style because I right. knew that he was wearing makeup, but that wasn't a costume. That was his physique. And so yeah, I got real. very enamored of it then. And then a you few who, months you know later, who else said the, you know, who else said the same thing? Who's that? Kirk. Kowalski. Kirk yeah, did. I could see that. 
I, I said it to Kirk. Kirk's, I said it too. Kirk's I a little. Kirk's, Kirk's a few years older than you, but yeah. the same. So the he same. said, "Yeah, he said Ferrigno is the Hulk." Really fired him up. Yeah, sure. I think yeah, that's a, that's not a you know a relatively common thing for kids who were just like, you know, being bullied or had some yeah. issue or weren't weren't outgoing, and that that's sort of I mean think of the analogy from you know quiet little David Banner to you know the Hulk or mm -hmm. and in life man if I could just be like that if I could just come out of my shell. Oh, and that was totally it for me, and and not too long after seeing him on. TV playing the Hulk, PBS showed Pumping Iron. And so there I got to see you know, oh, him man. and Arnold and Franco and all of those guys yeah. doing that stuff, which flipped another switch. You know, okay, the way to be able to pick up heavy things is to start picking up heavy things. And so I got a set of weights for Christmas when I was probably nine or 10 years old. And it's been, you know, an on again, off again thing for four decades now, uh, mostly on. Um, fast forward to what was it, 2006, 2007, I had, um, become in the strength business professionally teaching workshops doing personal training with kettlebells and eventually wound up opening a gym of my own um, mm. for a short period of time there and I was doing a product then uh, this predates podcasts I was doing a product where I would do interviews with people who were very strong or or, or very well known in the strength world that kind of stuff um and like John Berardi was one of them, who's not like a, uh, you know, known for his super strength, but he's the precision nutrition guy. So anything right. that was related to health and fitness. And I would take those interviews, record them, edit them down, burn them onto a CD and mail a physical CD out to my list. Absolutely. And one of the people that I interviewed was Bud Jeffries. And Bud recommended that I get in touch with Dennis because Dennis had taught him a lot of stuff about performing as a strongman. So I contacted Dennis uh, we hit it off pretty well, and he sent me some DVDs of uh, both instructional stuff and performance stuff as a way to you know prepare for the interview, and it completely um, changed the game for me. Because one of these videos, he was taking a red bandana and wrapping it around either an eight or a ten inch crescent wrench, like an adjustable wrench, and he bent it into a U shape, padded with just a bandana like that. And my brain couldn't compute that at the time. Um, and one of the things that Dennis had said is, if you ever want to learn how to do any of this stuff, just let me know and I'll show you. And that was, like I said, 2007, 2008, somewhere around in there. Well, in uh, short versions, the story is he started doing seminars called Old Time Strongman University. And I wound up helping him teach these seminars all the way up until the last one that we did in 2020. And at that point, he said he was done. He effectively retired, named me president of Old Time Strongman University, and you know, pretty well just passed the torch to me to make sure that this uh, lineage of this art form and this performance thing stays growing and alive. And then uh, coronavirus hit, and we haven't done a haven't done a workshop since then, but I'm working on an online component to that as well, too. So um, that's well, the short version of the story. I went from the Hulk to Dennis Rogers to here we are. So but coming up, uh, you know, after you saw the Hulk, you're a kid. Mm -hmm. Did you were you involved in sports? Is that when you started lifting and and did, you did it for athletics or you just you just kept lifting and working and going to school and all that? Then and, you know, then you met the Dennis Rogers guy. Yeah, well, I um um as a kid, I got that set of weights. As a, a teenager in junior high and high school, I decided to join the football team, not because I cared about football or because I really wanted to play, but because they had a nicer weight room than I had in my my little concrete DP set at home. You know, 
So um, that was the appeal of playing football. And so I, I, I wasn't great. I didn't suck, but you know, I was an average um, 185 pound teenager playing football in high school. Um, went through a period of time where I was playing music professionally, didn't train very much there, but then in my late twenties, I got back in. Time out. Stop, 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 music. stop, stop, music. stop, 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 stop. Yeah. Don't skip ahead so fast. You're like, this is like Ori Hoffmacher. I have to interject. What did, what did you play? What's your instrument? Uh, I'm a guitar player. Okay. When did you just start doing that? When I was, I think, probably 13 or so. So early, early 80s. And I... Um, Who were your influences? Um, Edward Van Halen, for sure. Um I like Ted Nugent's music a lot, ACDC, a lot of that kind of rock from there. And then so as were, that, uh, were you a work? So we were working musician. Um, when I got into my twenties, I was, yeah, I was, uh, I played in a band in college in the early nineties and then dropped out of college to go on the road with a, um, a country band based out of Nashville, just like a, a bar band that we were doing six nights a week, um, four or five sets a night. And that'll get your, that'll get your chops together. Yeah. Did you, yeah. Did you, did you do a lot of uh Willie Nelson and uh <laughs> so when was that? When was that? What was popular then? What, this, was in, uh, this was in the Willie and Whalen. Willie and Whalen, man, right? Uh, no, no, this was top 40 stuff in the um oh. in the mid nineties Brooks era. Garth Brooks. Yeah, era, it was it was man. Garth Brooks, uh Travis Tritt. Oh, I love uh, Travis. Travis um in my opinion it was the that era was the beginning of the end for country music because i love me some willie nelson some waylon jennings all that kind of stuff my dad was a pro musician he was uh, that was. whole outlaw country thing yeah. what did he play is he a guitar he played, player he played guitar he sang he played banjo mandolin and fiddle so you got that from him yes yeah. absolutely 100 did i tell y'all that i went to the forks of the river jam where is that, Dave? It's in Tennessee, like Bristol, Tennessee, or something on this huge farm mm -hmm. when I was in college. And it was Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Lori Morgan, Travis Tritt. I mean, Morty Stewart. It was it was awesome. So everybody there was these bikers, right? I mean, right. there's hundreds of there, you know, had probably be hundred thousand people. And uh a brawl started off, started out, and Lori Morgan was on there. I love Lori Morgan. And Laurie Morgan said, it stops her set and says, hey, y'all, everybody's <laughs> watching you instead of watching me. Cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> but it was awesome. Man. Forks Jim, of the Jim yeah. did you did you uh, did you fall asleep at 11 o'clock and get sunburned? No, that was Ozfest. Drinking too much. <laughs> that was Ozfest. No, but no, it was. Uh, why? Who did that? JP did that. Oh, you! Oh, I, I, one of my buddies fell asleep, and they were half in the sunshine and half in the shade, so half their face got sunburned, oh, yeah. and the other half was white. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Dave, anyway, Dave, were just... you were you able to train while uh, you were uh, on the road doing all this stuff? What, no, I, I, it, it kind of no. went to the back of my mind. It, uh, <laughs> five push-ups in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Hell no! I did a I lot of too, I did a lot I was of sixteen too ounce drinking. Yeah, I was about to say I did a lot of sixteen ounce curls. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You go from this this really that's shy it, kid right. who was picked on, and you now you're on stage all the time. That you I mean you didn't have a choice. You had to get well, up there, right? Well, I wasn't shy. That was the, that was the trick when I was a kid, and uh -huh. I had this, this terrible yeah. stutter. But I was very much extra extroverted. So I would 
you know, I found all sorts stutter, of ways to express stutter, myself stutter, that weren't stutter, necessarily. Stutter went away when you sang. Yeah, I don't sing. I mean, oh, I don't, don't sing well. So. Marty, <laughs> but I'm saying, but the Mel stutter goes away when you sing. Yes. Like Mel Tellis. Mel yep. Tellis. Yeah. Remember that? How do Mel you make us? Yeah. How do you make us stutter that, go away, though? Mel I mean, how, how do you work on that? I mean, I, I I never went to speech therapy or anything like that, but I intuitively knew that if I could learn to deliberately and intentionally pronounce words, right, that that would help. So what I did was I took my comic books and I took my like novelized um, superhero stories, like paperback stuff, and I would read them into one of those old cassette recorders. And then good. I'd play it back and listen to myself and see what it what it sounded like. And I actually wound up kind of getting rid of a of a large amount of my Tennessee accent in doing that when I was a kid. It was just it was an intuitive thing. So well, I just went. Don't get too cured. Yeah, I'll get rid of it. So you got you got. Well, I can turn it on up. when I need to, though. You know what I'm saying? That's right, son. Did, did you get bullied pretty good growing up because of the stuttering? Is that what kind of fired you up to uh, get into strength as well? Well, it was the stutter. Yes, definitely. But I was also, um, I was a fat kid, you know, it, I, not just like chubby. I was like super chunky. And mm -hmm. so those two things together made for really good fodder for bullies to do whatever it was that they were doing. You know, looking back on it now, I realized they were just kids and they had their own insecurities and they were trying to figure out how to, how to handle that themselves. But you know, Man. it was at my expense, so that wasn't cool either. But I'm actually thankful for the whole experience because I may not have ever picked up a barbell if it if it you know hadn't happened that way. And I, I think said it's the same exact thing. Yes, because that I happened to me, and that's why I started lifting. Yeah, and I think it's really cool now that I used to be that kid who would like get physically ill when it was book report day and you had to get up in front of the class and oh, speak yeah. because I knew it was going to oh, happen. Yeah. I went from that to standing on stage speaking to people for a living. Um, either as a performer or teaching seminars, you know, because that's you stand up there for six or eight hours a day and talk to people. You got to be able to to yeah. keep their attention, not just with the information, but with the presentation, because even the best information, if it's presented in a in a boring way that doesn't engage people is not going to work. Right. You know, they won't retain well, it. Well, not if you wear a kilt. <laughs> kilt is awesome. uh, somebody, you asked know, me why, somebody asked me why I wear a kilt, and I said because I think it's frowned upon for me to perform naked. <laughs> yeah, proud Nashvilleian, aren't you? That's you know right. uh, that whole bullying. You wonder with the bullying thing. You've heard so many stories of people rising up from that and making a change in their lives. You know, now there's so much anti-bullying. Now I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying though, did we learn something? Uh, that these kids today aren't learning. I mean, you know, sometimes you got to say, you know, oh, I'm going to let my kid go. And, you know, uh, he's going to have to deal with stuff on his own. You wonder if that made us stronger somehow. You know, my sister, three years older than me and her friends, they didn't pickle me physically, but they constantly were messing with me, you know, a little push mm -hmm. here and there. I remember every single one of them. When I got older, I went after every one of them. <laughs> but yeah. one, I still can't find this one guy. I've been looking him up on the Internet. But uh, back you, to my point, you wonder if that makes you different, you know, than the kids these days with the anti -bullying. You know, you know, we lucked out, though. Um, I found weights. They found weights. Um, and it, it just naturally meshed with with us and our personalities and our particular situation and all that. A lot of kids aren't that lucky. And on top of that, don't have the support from their parents and all that. And they hit a dead end and don't know where to go. Now, I didn't have any support from my parents. 
But when I found the weights, that became my, it, it just became my solve to the situation. And from there, I gained the confidence I needed, you know, whether I was supported at home or not to, uh, to just take the situation into my own hands and um, accomplish what I was trying to accomplish through the iron and was able to turn my situation around. And it sounds like uh, Dave's kind of uh, like that as well. But uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of other kids that, that don't have that situation or, or, or find the, the, the means to uh, deal with their situation like we did, you know, some of them need help and that's where the parenting should, should come in, friends and, and family and things like that for a, uh, a support system for them, you know, because some of these, these kids end up in bad shape, but. Well, I'm, I'm really thankful. My parents were always supportive of anything that I wanted to do. Like to the point that when I got really involved in wanting to, to lift and started subscribing to, well, not some, yeah. When I started subscribing to, to like muscle and fitness magazine, cause that was like the only thing back then. That was the yeah. only source that I had. Um, um, we didn't have a lot of money, but my dad had carpentry skills and he actually built me a wooden squat rack that I could use nice. because I was, I had gotten to the point that it didn't make sense for me to, you know, clean and press the weight overhead and then lower it onto my shoulders, which is what I started out with because there was, I didn't have any coaching, any instruction, which is like a picture of a guy with a barbell on his back. And I'm like, how did he get that on his back? And then, you know, there's a picture of a squat rack. Oh, that makes sense. So my dad built one for me and built, um, built, it was all made out of wood, except for the pulleys. He built like a lat pull down seated row thing that was in my bedroom, nailed to the wall. Wow. And so anytime I wanted to, I could just roll over and do, you know, some rows or some pull downs or whatever. There you go. That is so funny. Now I built a bench press out of two by fours. My, my dad did, did help me with that. I designed it all on paper, measured it out. And he took wow. me to the uh, lumber yard and we got all the stuff. Same situation in my bedroom, had an old billard barbell set. And eventually, you know, I acquired more stuff and more weights. And eventually I got a nice bench. I think it was a weeder bench or something. Mm -hmm. But now we had to we had to skip ahead, but Dave had quite a uh, career in kettlebells too, and I'd be interested as to number one how you got into kettlebells, what attracted you to them, when did that happen, and does that carry through to through to today? Sure. Um, in the late nineties around the time that the internet started being something that that wasn't you know it's and uh, at the time it was getting on the internet for me involved like a trip to the library and stuff you know and so around the time that i got a computer and started having the ability to get on the internet at home anytime i wanted to um i was a big fan of dorian yates big fan of ronnie coleman you know all of those guys and mike mincer and and started down that path and somehow wound up findings information about like Arthur Saxon and Herman Gerner and all of these really strong guys from the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and then I see this um, information online about kettlebells. And I'm like, well, that's pretty interesting. And then I was also reading um, what was Bill Phillips magazine back then muscle media and, um, and dragon door had, had taken out some full page ads for um, kettlebell related things. And then I'm like, Oh, that's really interesting. It looks like these things that these, guys from a hundred years ago were using. Um, and I had a friend who had bought a 16 kilo, 35 pound kettlebell 
and a VHS, uh, the first VHS that Pavel Sosseline did, uh, the Russian kettlebell challenge. And he knew that I was into lifting and in the gym and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and at the time I was really, really deep into keys to progress from John McCallum. I had bought that book and was just mm, fascinated by the way the guy wrote the information that was in there. I thought it was just really good all around stuff, which, um, tangent on that, um, Marty, when I first read your stuff, it reminded me not in the execution, but kind of in the spirit of, of what John McCallum did, where it's like, okay, here's this information I could write down, you know, one set of yeah. 20 reps in the squat and three sets of 10 in the bench press. And here you go. But McCallum and you both present that in such a way that you're masterful storytellers. And again, keeping the person engaged and giving them a reason to read all the way to the end, just like in a show, keeping them engaged and giving them a reason to stick around to the end of the talk. It was very, very powerful. Um, so the echoes of John McCallum's spirit um, were important to me. When I, um, I asked well, Bill Starr. They're, they're, they're writers and they're typists, you know? Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, so um, I have one second. So, you know, if you, if, you know, Bill Starr is a, was a friend of Marty and, and, and myself. Mm -hmm. When I asked him personally where he got his writing style from, he said John McCallum. I could see that. Yeah. If you I'm, notice, he does the quotes and and the uh, little stories involving the skinny kid who gets big and yeah, same kind of stuff. Go ahead. Yeah. The the, the John McCallum stuff. Also, I got the um, from Iron Mind. I'd been on I bought some stuff from them along the way, um, grip related stuff, just and didn't really know what the hell I was doing with it. But um, the uh, Super Squats book was a very interesting book to me, too, at that time. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, coming back off my tangent, I borrowed this VHS and this 35 pound kettlebell and watched a little bit of what was going on and, and played with it a little bit. And then immediately decided that I was strong enough and knew exactly what I was doing and went out in the yard. And I vividly remember this. I took that kettlebell and I snatched it 10 times with my left hand, switched hands on the fly, thinking I was really cool for not dropping it. And then 10 times with the other hand, you know, 35 pound kettlebell. And I sat it down and then all of a sudden it hit me and I'm, I'm, I had to literally go down on my knees and I started trying to figure out exactly where I had lost control of my life because that sustained strength, even though it wasn't a very long set, that, that high output sustained strength, um, third way cardio, Marty calls it. Um, was something that I had never experienced that way. Um, like the closest thing that I had ever come to that feeling was running sprints in football, but yeah. this was different. This yeah. went from my heels all the way up to the back of my neck. It, my fingers didn't want to work. And so I was sitting there like trying to recover and waiting for buzzers to come start eating me. And I thought there's, <laughs> there's something to this and I either need to completely ignore it and hope it goes away, or I need to kind of throw myself into it and see what I can find out here. And so that was in probably 2001. Um, so I started figuring out what I could with that. Wound up going to um, RKC kettlebell certification in 2003. A couple years later was um, brought on as one of their master instructors and started helping teach the kettlebell certifications. And then right. when, so, whoa, 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 whoa. so you worked your way up. How long did it take you to, to go from no nothing about kettlebells to becoming a, a master instructor? They don't just give those out. No, um, it was 2003 to 2000, probably about five years. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Well, there so was, there was, there was tears the to it. There was well, tears um, to it. Yeah. I love, I love the sustained strength uh, angle. 
Mm-hmm. What what physiologic changes did you notice in yourself? Um, in myself, I noticed that my um, you must have been a, a, a locomotive at the end of the five year period. Yeah, yeah. I by, by the time I got um, practiced and skillful at that stuff, I was uh, um, I, I figured out that I had a a natural inclination toward that sustained strength kind of stuff. And so by right, the time right right by the right. time I'd involved in it, been involved in it for several years, I was doing stuff like. Um, there's a video on YouTube of this. Um, I snatched a 24 kilo kettlebell 200 times, just under eight minutes, yeah. which is now pretty rowdy. Into, when, when you and I remember when you and I were working together, uh-huh. I had, I had him strap up, right? We put a heart rate monitor on. Oh yeah. Because, yeah. That, that became indispensable because up until that point, he really hadn't paid too much attention to how hard his heart was working in relation to the work that was being done. And when I heard the, the poundage for the durations, I'm like, damn, what do you think this guy's caloric burn rate would be? Cause he's a big guy. What you were 250 at the time, right? Oh no, I was, I was hovering around 300. Like I was 300. Yeah. Like you, like you used to say, I was a biscuit away from 300. Couple biscuits, couple biscuits, (laughs) couple biscuits shy of 300. That's what my grandmother used to say. Uh, So we strapped them up and I can't remember if there were some incredible calorie per minute burn rates again, because of his mass, because he's not a little 2,200 pound Mazda Miata. He's a, a forty thousand pound truck loaded with steel going down the road. It takes a lot of fuel, yeah, to move that yeah. three hundred pound body. So he was I, off the top of my head. Were you moving like thirty minutes, forty five minutes? And I mean the the number of calories you were hitting. What were you hitting? It was it was off the charts, both in terms of the total number of calories he was oxidizing, also his calorie per minute burn rate. Well, um, you and I had had several conversations about that and I was using a heart rate monitor, which was estimating things, but I wanted to get a little more precise on it. I actually wound up contacting the um, um, athletic performance area of Vanderbilt university in Nashville and went in and strapped into their, um, what do you call it? The VO two max testing thing where they, they put you Mm -hmm. on the treadmill and, and, essentially duct tape the thing into your mouth to where you can only breathe through your mouth, you know, but, um, I didn't get on the treadmill. I, I took a 24 kilogram kettlebell with me and I put headphones in and I flipped the switch in my mind. What's 24, 54 pounds, 53 pounds. Yeah. It's around 53 pounds. And, um, um, I, you know, I had these, this mask on with this tube coming out of it. So that kind of impeded my movement a little bit, but I got myself situated in a way that I could do kettlebell swings and I switch, uh, flip the switch in my mind where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm going to see how far I can push this. I'm going to red zone this thing, you know? And, um, this actually came about for two reasons. One, the conversations that we were having Marty about output. And then also, um, some silencing some naysayers and like putting some actual scientific evidence on the internet. Right. Um, Uh you know, you're using momentum to lift that you're not getting any benefit. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Uh Um, you try. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Olympic lifters use momentum and then tell us all about momentum. 
Yeah. Momentum is used by Olympic lifters to throw snatches over their head too. So let's just talk right. about that sometime. It's called explosive, uh, it's called explosive strength as opposed yep. to absolute strength. Yeah. And so what I had to, what I had to learn to do over time was explode enough to keep it moving, but, um, not go, not go wide open every rep. Yeah. Be efficient with it. Right. So anyway, the, the final results of that experiment, I was, um, I went for, I think 27 minutes total time, um, without setting it down. And I lost count of the reps after about 400, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand swings that I did in that one session. And, um, the, uh, my heart rate peaked at 182. And I think I was, I was, what 43 44 years old at the time so you know that should have where'd you whack that day um 290 ish i guess maybe 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 270 i don't know somewhere around in there i had lost some weight at that point so probably in the probably in the mid 270s i'd say okay yeah well that's a big difference yeah yeah right uh how tall are you i'm i'm about 5'11 six foot somewhere around in there all right all right so we uh we got the we got the data readout and the guy was just standing there looking at it, shaking his head, shaking his head. And I had, I had been doing this kind of training long enough that I recovered almost immediately. You know, I drank some water and like, what do we got? You know, um, a very conditioned for that specific thing. And he just kept shaking his head and he was, um, I don't know where he was from, like Sri Lanka or India or something. He's like, man, you did a lot of work. You did a lot of work. And I'm like, well, what's the, what do the numbers say? And he, he, um, cause you know, at the end I'm like, okay, did I really go as hard as I could? And I looked right. and, and I saw that I was, had spiked at 182 and I'm like, yeah, I don't think I could have gone much harder than that and survived. So, um, the, the final number was an average calorie burn over that entire 27 minute. I think it was 27 minutes. That entire period of time was 20.8 calories per minute yeah. average. Yeah. Right. So that's not Every including minute. ramping up at the beginning and, and no. running out of steam toward the end. Right. That, yeah. 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 So at blended, that peak, I would estimate an average. Yeah. At, at that peak, I would estimate 22, you know, 21, 22 calories per minute just to get that average. So, um, to do the math times 27, uh, it's a lot of calories, man. Yeah. That's yeah. Like 560 or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's a and, lot. And it's, um, it's like Steve Justa. Definitely. Right? Um, Steve would, he was the, uh, the grand maestro of sustained strength. And he'd do stuff like pick up a 550 pound railroad tie, shoulder it, and then walk a quarter mile with it. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, crazy. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, and um, one yeah, time he's... he, he walked, uh, he walked 20 paces through mud with 800 pounds on each back in the spot bar. He said, yeah, that was the most dangerous. He said, that was the most dangerous thing I ever did. Yeah. And it, apparently it was the kind of mud that you step into it and you take your next step and it leaves your shoe stuck in the mud behind yeah. you, that kind of yeah. mud. Yeah. 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 He was, so he, this, this, this type of strength, uh, the sustained strength, uh, you were all over it. You were breaking new ground with that. Um, what, where are you at today with it? Are you still pursuing the same path? Have you evolved? Uh, you still as much into it? Kettlebells. Um, uh, not, not as much as I used to be for sure, because it used to be, this was the kind of thing that I did 
um, not only for my own enjoyment and my own growth as a, as a human, but it was also what I did professionally. So I, I felt, a I felt, uh, an obligation to be operating at the highest level that I could on that stuff then. Um, and, uh, you mentioned Justin and he was just as definitely influenced me. Um, but I have to give a nod to Bud Jeffries on this too, because he was one of the first people that, that w- decided that 20 reps wasn't a lot of reps, you know, and a hundred reps wasn't a lot of reps. Can you pick it up and, and swing it or snatch it for 500 reps without putting it back down? And that was, that was one of the, it's actually um, part of the beginning of the end of me getting out of the kettlebell world because they were all about maximal tension and, and um, this whole hard style thing. And I'm like, but it's not heavy enough that we need to do that. Let's, let's learn that skill. That's fine. But now let's actually lift something heavy. And, and um, uh, Marty, you actually said something to me once that really stuck with me about how these guys were approaching um, the 48 kilo kettlebell as if it were some mythical dragon to be slain. And you were just like, dude, it's a hundred pounds. It's not heavy. And I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Also, I told him one time, he, he said, well, you know, I said that the problems is that they don't make 400 pound kettlebells. Right. You know, that's the other, that's the other issue. And that's where he went. He was like, and he's, you are so uh, built for it. He's got heavy bone structure. You've got like a rhino bone structure. You're, sure. you're, you're perfect for, for having a lot of muscle. Uh, but the cardio conditioning, see, that's that's the, that was the unique angle. And again, for a big guy, uh, he was showing, no, you can be a locomotive no matter. You don't have to be some dancer or acrobat in order to have good cardio. Um, you know, you could go all day. You could yeah, run a marathon. If, you're, if, you're, yeah, if yeah. your legs would take it, you could run a marathon. Sure. Dave, Dave, sure. The, Dave, the other component to this uh, sustained strength, too, is the relationship between the mind and uh, sustained strength. So what, what, how does that come into play during something like this is 27 minute uh, swing with a 53 pound kettlebell? I mean, where does the mind go? What are you doing that might be different from somebody else that's doing something similar or lifting weights? This may be my favorite subject in the world to talk about. Um, the For me, around that period of time, there was a convergence between the idea of sustained strength, the idea of, of you know, 48 kilos not being heavy, and, well, what does strong really mean for me? And, you know, I was starting to get into the performance and steel bending side of things, so there was a mental shift there, um, and all of the mindset stuff that went along with that was incredibly important to me. Like uh, one of my, one of the really powerful things that slim the hammer man said to me on one of the occasions that I was fortunate enough to spend some time with him is you've already got the power in you. Something in your mind is stopping you. You can't access the power because of the fear. So what are you going to do to not be afraid? And so like that, that whole, um, getting into that physiological and emotional mental state of this is a life and death situation. And it, it clears the mind from anything else. You know, when you're in the middle of, of, you know, you're 700 reps into a thousand 
rep set of swinging a kettlebell, it's much like being under a 600 pound barbell. You know, you're not thinking about the argument you have with your wife or when your mortgage is due or the guy that cuts you off in traffic, because if you do that, it'll, you know, you're, you're going to fail. Yeah. You're not going to make it. So there was this convergence of that. And around that same time um, was when I was introduced to the Wim Hof method and, yeah. and started, started paying attention. I thought you were going to say that. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's now perfect. I had been, I had done various martial art things and various meditations and Qigong and pranayama and, and a lot of that kind of stuff starting in about 94, 95. And so I was familiar with that. Um, saw Wim Hof doing these feats of extreme cold exposure. And I had been doing cold water dousing where you just take a couple of buckets, leave them out overnight. They get a little bit chilly. You go out in the morning, pour them over your head and breathe a little bit and, and you know, think you've done Why, something awesome. Dave? Why? Um, Why? <laughs> because right. I had, I had, um, from a physiological Why? standpoint, I had been told and the yeah. evidence, you know, the science supports it, that, uh, it's good for the immune system. That's right. And Steve uh, Maxwell, Marty, your buddy, Steve Maxwell used to do that every morning. Yep, that's, that's yeah, actually, I believe that. that's actually where I first got turned on to it. Was Is that right? Time. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, um, so I was doing you got that. that JP? And, yes, I got it. I'd rather eat bee pollen. <laughs> you know what? I'd rather eat bee pollen or something. Stimulate my immune system. Wagner does it every night. Also, Bill <laughs> yeah. Wagner, every night. Yeah. So uh, around that time, when I first got introduced to Wim Hof, I'm, I'm doing this cold water dousing and I see video of him. Um, and they use like chainsaws to cut these holes in like three foot thick ice. And he yeah. swam like 50 or 60 yards under the ice and came up in another hole. And I'm like, well, that puts my little, you know, eight gallons of water I'm pouring over my head <laughs> in a different perspective. You know, for me, it was very much like, the guy who finally, after years of trying to teach himself how to lift, pulls 185 off the floor, and then he turns on the, the internet and sees Eddie Hall, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. I am not, I am not even, I haven't even tied my shoes and packed my bags to get in the car to go on this trip yet. So um, I started paying attention to what Wim was doing because it was interesting to me and found out that his um, one of the big events in his life was he had a, um, he was married and had four children and his wife had some sort of mental illness. I don't want to, um, misdiagnose her or, or present a, a, a fact that isn't a fact, but there was something going on with her that she essentially woke up one day, sent the kids to school and then jumped out like an eight story window and killed herself. She was, she was not stable. And that, was crippling emotionally to whim. And he used all of this stuff that he was doing with his meditation and cold exposure to deal with that. And right around the same time that I was first found out about him was when my mother passed away and I was having a hard time with that. So I'm like, I'll give this a shot. And it was very beneficial to me across all those areas. But the convergence that was going on was the breathing methods that Wim was using as a part of the, the whole system were um doing things that were like we i'm, I'm actually teaching a workshop on this this weekend um we will on typically uh, the wim hof method um okay. here so in now you you you're uh, uh what are they have wim hof certified instructor yeah yeah i, I went through okay. the i went and spent a week with him in colorado back in 2016 and it was amazing nice. we went and swam nice. in frozen lakes and stuff it was it was fantastic um Excellent. 
but he well, by, um, by the way by the way dave you did you get uh, the wim hoff book that came out in dragon ball yeah i got all of them uh the <clears throat> well you got the first one yeah, I've, I've got all the all the books that have been involved. You know, the one that he wrote, I got the the one that Dragon Door okay, did. Right, wrote the right, forward right. to it. I wrote the forward. Yep, I remember that. Yep. Well, how was that camp? Just real quick, how was the camp? I mean, was that just a life changing experience, or and how many people were there, and and what was a typical day like? I mean, you don't have to go crazy about it, but that's pretty think, interesting. I think there were twenty eight of us who were there to go through the instructor training, and we had done um, previous workshops with him as like prerequisites. And then it was him, and I think three or four other people that were from his his camp who were there to make sure that food was cooked and that because right. um, we all stayed in this one big cabin type thing with like multiple bedrooms. Um, and we would we would roll out of bed in the morning. We would do maybe an hour's worth of breathing exercises. We'd all eat breakfast, hang out, and then we would um, go through teaching and learning the the ins and outs of how to present the material and the science behind it and all that. And then around lunchtime, we'd do another big breathing session, and then another one at the end of the day. And somewhere in there, every day, we would go out into the um, november colorado weather and play outside we swam in a couple different lakes one day we um hiked up this peak i don't know how how high we went but we hiked up this peak in the snow everyone's wearing just you know i was in boots and a kilt it's what i had on going up the, up, nice. up the mountain well we, hopefully there was something on under that kilt uh, yeah i yeah <laughs> Some i just i just yeah yeah, I could make all kinds of jokes there. Yeah, I was wearing some shorts under because I didn't want to, you know. Thank you, David. Thank you. I didn't want to uh, slip what, and fall and go brown eyed down on a rock or anything, you know. What's he? <laughs> what's he like as a person? What's he? What's his? Was you know how some people walk into a room? It's like, oh man, that's some, that guy's got some aura about him. What What was he like? He He does have that, but he can also shut it off, and you don't even know he's in the room. It's It's a really interesting guy. He is. He is. At the same time, an enlightened yoga master sitting on the mountain and an absolute wild animal that will rip your trash apart. You know, he, he, um, it, it, his wait mantra is, wait a minute, that's good. A wild animal that will yeah. rip your trash apart. Yeah. He's a wild animal to come and tip over your, your trash can and just string stuff all over the place. Cause he just what does, does that mean? What, he, what do you mean by that? I think I'm going to steal that. I love that. That's great. Sounds good. <laughs> hey, well, what do you he, mean by that? He can, he, he can be talking and, you know, be going very deep into some sort of esoteric spiritual breath work practice type conversation, or he could be talking about, um, whatever evidence, the studies at the university showed on what they did with various aspects of the breathing and cold exposure, and then immediately flip a switch and start telling dick jokes. <laughs> wow. And was, now I know he drinks some beer. Did he, did he was allowed, he allowed y'all to drink some beer while y'all were up there? Or what? Um, well, there was one night that, uh, the afternoon he said, everybody go into town and get whatever you want to drink tonight. Cause tomorrow we're going to practice a breathing technique to cure a hangover. Nice. Okay. <laughs> and we did. And it worked the next day. It worked. You know, it's, it's like okay. that. All right. The, all right. All right. Whoa. Time out. <laughs> now go a little deeper into this breathing cure for hangover. Yeah, sure. nice. Right, Marty. Yeah. And, and, and it actually ties in very well to, to what originally sparked this, this tangent that I'm on. Um, 
was implementing the breath work in to get the body prepped for those long sessions. The, the breathing, um, for, for recovering from a hangover is quite similar. Um, the basic idea is that you do a lot of really deep breaths, um, fully in and then just let it go. Diaphragm breathing, Dave, diaphragm breathing. Um, it starts from there. Um, you know, uh, breathing into the chest and, and into the upper chest has gotten really vilified by fitness professionals. And if you're not breathing into your belly, then, you know, basically a kitten dies every time you do that. But, <laughs> but what, what really makes sense though, if you're truly, truly under physical stress, distress, you're going to breathe high into your chest, right? The, the issue with chest breathing is that it's not the most effective way for sedentary people to breathe, but sedentary people, you know, if you, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of idea. So if they're not stressing themselves or if they're not um, specifically practicing any sort of diaphragmatic belly breathing, the body and its efficiency tends to be like, well, we don't really need to do this. So we're not going to put any, any, you know, uh, physiological energy into it. And then when you ask them to take a deep breath, they think it means breathe high into their chest and shoulders. So they don't know how to take a deep breath because it's been forgotten. But if you look at the, var the various different ways that you can breathe, you can do deep belly breathing. Like, like is taught in, in many meditation and, and Qigong pranayama um, type modalities. And that's important very important for relaxation and for, you know, leveling things out and getting into, um, the, uh, meditative state and, and all of that recovery even. Right. But if you want to get hyped up to do something, you need to go into chest breathing because that signals to your body, Hey, let's dump some adrenaline into this thing and let's get ready to swing the kettlebell or do the deadlift or fight the saber tooth tiger, whatever it might be. So the, the actual, or go into the, to the frozen lake, you know, um, so the actual breathing is breathe deep into the belly and then go ahead and expand the chest and breathe it as well. And, um, the last bit, um, we use the imagery of breathe into your head, but really what it is, is you're, you know, elevating your shoulders and your clavicles, that last little bit, which is the, um, flipping the switch on the nitrous with Bo and Luke right before they jump over the washed out bridge to get away from Sheriff Roscoe kind of thing, you know, all right, all right, all right. Um, time out, time out. Okay. Time out, time out. Okay. So. It's not either or, it's both. Yes. You, I would imagine you start with the belly breathing, the expanding mm -hmm. of the diaphragm, which continues on to the chest. Exactly. And that point about having to lift the shoulders, as Jim will verify, you have to learn that past a certain point in squatting. Past a certain point in squatting, I don't know, pick a pound and say 500 pounds if you don't lift your shoulders the weight will crush you down and you yeah. cannot get a breath it crushes your lungs down it crushes you down and you you're, you have to do this really shallow breathing you have to learn to lift your entire musculature mm -hmm. lift your shoulders up and back allowing the lungs to open right well you do that for 10 years yeah and you got something right yes does that become automatic? Do you have to yeah. think about the process each I time? Think, yeah, it's think about it every time, every time, every okay. time, every time. Lift your shoulders, breathe. And as Cassidy used to say, breathe in like you're trying to suck all the air out of the room. Yep. And I Same wanna, thing. And I got I wanna, that. Yep. And I want to hear it. I want to yep. hear it. 
Yeah. So no, David, no little, no, no little nose breathing. No little, no, no, yeah, that. It's like so, get out of the room. That's right. So Dave, is that what's going through your mind when you're doing the, you know, the the fifty three pound swing for twenty seven minutes straight? Or you, is your mind somewhere else? Is there a state of meditation, or is that part of the meditation? Thinking this process, this breathing process, through repeatedly. Well, the, the it, that's actually two different things that we're talking about there. There's there's what I would do to prepare for the set, which is similar to what Marty's talking about. And as far as whether it becomes automatic, um, yes, in my experience, it becomes automatic. But it's also very much to me like a um, a commercial jet pilot still has yeah. a checklist, even if he's got Absolutely. thousands of flights, he right. still goes down a checklist to make sure. Um, just because redundancy is vitally important. You know, you got 500 pounds on your back. That's trying to kill you. You're trying to get your heart rate up and, you know, to the one seventies and keep it there. These are not, um, these activities are not without risk. And so just like flying a plane, go down the checklist just to make sure don't trust your own memory and certainly don't trust your own habit, um, to do that. Like we, we've got a, a part of our mind that goes on autopilot. We've got a part of our mind that goes um, very analytical and goes down that checklist. Um, use both of them. There's no need to compartmentalize anything, you know? Right. Dave, Dave let me ask you a quick question. Did, sure uh, did Wim uh, specify um, Kundalini breath of fire? Not in those terms. No, okay. but um okay. There's a, a specific method that we use to activate brown adipose tissue to release right. energy that way that is very similar to Kundalini breath of fire or Tumo. Um, Tumo, yep. yeah. Um, yep. but, so, so what is it? Describe it to us in 25 words or less. For, the, for that breath of fire type activation, it's a yes. lot. Of, um, it, it's starting slow, ramping up the breath. So you would start mm -hmm. out with a... a a cadence it's about like and then after a dozen or so breaths like that you sort of shift gears and you mm -hmm. gradually go up that way until you're going faster and faster like a panting dog the okay um um yeah the caveat, no, with you. the caveat there though is that it's not a passive exhale at that point it is a active inhale as deeply as you can, as quickly as you can, and an active exhale as quickly and deeply as you can. So it's not like a dog panting. It's like rapidly blowing out birthday candles. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And then when you get to the point that, and, and, and you want to talk about some, some sustained strength that will, that kind of breathing will develop your diaphragm in a way that nothing else can, in my experience. Um, well, and so for the actual, that's, um, why, that's why, that's why Wim has you do it on the floor, right? Yes. Yes, definitely. And so they all, um, lay, they all lay in the floor because if they did it standing up, there's a chance they could pass out and fall mm -hmm. over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I used to do that kind of stuff seated until I, woke up on the floor and wondered why I wasn't <laughs> sitting up anymore. Seriously, yeah. because the, the final component of that is you take in a big breath and then you contract your pelvic floor. You contract your everything around your, you know, abdomen, your lower back, the muscles in your sides. Um, and you continue to contract up your intercostals between your ribs and you direct your attention between the shoulder blades. And you're, you know, very much similar to the squat. You would be, pulling your shoulders together, your shoulder blades rather together and up to, to really direct your attention into that area. 
in, mm-hmm. into the, the area where the bar would sit on your back mm-hmm. if you're doing mm-hmm. a squat and you, uh, with a, after breathing that way and then holding your breath and doing that kind of tension for 15 to 30 seconds, you get this rush of heat. Um, you of course can get lightheaded, but, um, it physiologically goes in and it taps into that brown adipose tissue and it releases that, um, um, to be set into yeah. ATP production for, for more, you know, it literally raises the metabolic rate is the, the short explanation of that. You said and 25 long, words, not 2,500. Sorry. That's good. No, 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 no. That's good. And, and that breath cycle would last what a minute. I mean, how, from the time you start the first breath to the time you do the hold breath at the end, just ballpark. How long would that um, for me and my practice, probably around a minute to a minute and a half. Um, if it's okay. someone who was not very skilled at it, I might take mm-hmm. longer to ramp up. Like okay. at, at the point that I am now having done this for several years, I can go straight into medium high to high speed on the breathing and get to the same place. And, and you do it uh, repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. Do as many rounds as feels good to you. Like if I'm um, going to go outside and play in the snow with my son, like I did a few weeks ago. And I want to go out there in nothing but a pair of shorts. I will just periodically a kilt, a kilt. only a kilt. That's all yes. Only a kilt, only a kilt. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would, I periodically do like 10 or 12 breaths like that in that contraction just to keep myself warm. And it's, okay. it's remarkably effective. It, and it's not well. that like, it's not like I'm getting cold and I'm enduring it through mental toughness. It's literally, I don't feel the cold the same way that yeah, I used to. Yeah. It's not an act of willpower. It's Mm-mm. a physiological t- transformation that's affected through uh, breath control. And also the, the idea you said something interesting, you said uh, that you have to maintain mental concentration on both active inhalation and active exhalation you can't space out on your exhalation and have a passive exhalation because that's where the little thoughts slip in yep right in the passivity so you you have to maintain and if you don't maintain this total mental focus when you're doing this uh, this intense breathing you lose it yeah you got to get the rhythm right man you got to get the rhythm is the you gotta you gotta get that thing going you gotta settle into that into that state where this is what you're doing and this is all you're doing you know the and the parallels between that kind of breathing the sustained strength kettlebell swing third way cardio stuff and something like a heavy squat or a heavy deadlift are very similar because if you for a fraction of a second lose your focus then the chance of, of losing the entire set is there. You know, it's, it's, it's much more difficult to recover that focus and, and be back in the place that you were than it is to stay there in the first place. So, so Dave, let me ask you, is, is the breath of fire something good to uh, like do between a, a set while you're weightlifting, like between a set of squats or something, because if you're doing it for a minute to a minute and a half, you know, that's maybe about what you're resting. So would that be good? Have you ever done that? Um, I played with that and I didn't find it to be very effective because I felt like I never actually recovered from the squats, mm-hmm. for example. So I like, say you do a, um, a medium tough, you know, 70, 75% rate of perceived effort set of squats and you're breathing a little heavy, but it didn't destroy you. Well, I like to breathe long, slow and smooth to recover right. from that. And then yeah. if I'm going to go into the next set and I need to ramp it back up again for the, you know, 30 seconds or so before the set, that might be part of my, 
my process of, of setup, you know, because uh, something that another parallel between what I learned from Marty and what I learned from guys like Slim the Hammerman is every time you approach a lifter of feet, you do it the same way. And it starts oh, before oh. you ever even get near the platform, right? I remember uh, Jim, I'm, they're singing your song, Jim. That's it. That's it. I remember, I remember Kirk talking about um, approaching the squat rack. And if he like put his hands on the bar and got under it or, or whatever, and it didn't feel like it was sitting exactly right. Or if like, say something caught his attention out the corner of his eye as he was walking to the rack, he would literally turn around and walk away from the rack and then go back to his start line and approach the entire thing again, which was very interesting to me at the time, because, um, at that seminar, like I said, the day before that I'd gone to visit slim and slim had this this um red rug that was his his sacred space when he would do a show he would spread that rug out on whatever stage he was on and it didn't matter where he was anyone that set foot on that rug was in his in his house and he said and if you come in my house i own you and you know it and so he would approach these feats like leverage lifting hammers the exact same way. And he would do these things that look like showmanship flourishes, but what they really were, were part of his mental setup and calibrating himself. Um, every time he would do a particular thing, it would like, um, erase another distraction from him and focus him more in. And he said that if he approaches his rug and there's like a speck of, of dirt on the rug that doesn't belong there, he would move that speck of dirt, turn around, walk away from the, the rug and then walk back to it and start his setup again. So he, Slim and Kirk were saying exactly the same thing related to completely different movements, but it was the same attitude that they were bringing. So um, as far as like doing that kind of stuff between sets of, of absolute strength work, I, I tried that a couple of times and, and it did not work. The two things did not go together. It was like, you know, we always try to slow your breathing down, you know, you just slow yeah. it down. I was just thinking like even in, in the boxing and the Muay Thai, that's what we always said between, rounds you know slow all right slow your breathing down yeah it's well i think i think after a hard set of squats you need to release your mind too and just relax and mm -hmm. you know because during the squat you're so intensely you know involved in what you're doing and the visualization and all that stuff that you just kind of need a, a break from that uh, a mental and physical break during uh your recuperation from your set yeah, yeah it's just hard it's a uh, equally uh, difficult mental skill to learn. It's one thing to learn how to psych up. It's another thing to learn how immediately after you complete the set to zen out and psych down. And then bring it back up again, right, Marty? Yeah, because you got to do it again. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, you're through the squats. Now we got to do the bench press and we got to go to the deadlift and we got to do some of it, you know. And so it's repeated. It's not just, oh, we get to do one effort and go home. Mm. No, we have to do it repeatedly. And also one, one point on the breathing is if you really do this intense breathing right, uh, you can topple over. <laughs> um, yeah, you can, you can make yourself light in the head and fall over. Uh, that's a big reason that, that Wim has everybody learn it on the floor and get used to it on the floor. On their backs and a lot of times in sleeping bags, right? To get that um, extra comfort, that extra warmth, right? That extra, you know, cocoon. Yeah, we didn't actually do sleeping bags, but a lot of people found found it to be more effective or easier to get into that state by throwing a blanket over themselves. Right, so, right, like the right. something about the um the 
tactile response of the body being covered that way, it, I think on a deep subconscious level, it feels safe and it feels relaxing. And so it allows you to, to not be concerned about something bad happening to you. Right. Right. Um, Right. Right. Yeah. The, the whole mental aspect of all this is something that is absolutely utterly fascinating to me from, from like when I read the mighty Adam biography and, and he's like, before you, before you begin, you have to succeed in your mind. And then once you've succeeded in your mind, it's like, like firing a bullet from a gun. There's no turning back. Once it starts, it's done. And so um, seeing all of these guys that I respected really emphasizing that, you know, Kirk, Marty, Slim, Dennis Rogers, Mighty Adam emphasizing that it became very, very important to me to, to maximize my ability to do that skill. Yeah. And um, if I can, if I can share a little story on how that worked for me, um, as I was learning more about, I don't even call it visualization anymore because that implies one sense, the sense of sight. I refer to it as mental rehearsal because we can bring all of our senses into it. Um, I was, I had decided that I wanted to, as a steel bender, bend the iron mind red nail. And you may or may not know what that is. Um, iron mind sells steel to bend and they sell all this product associated with it, but they set up a certification and John Brookfield was the first person to do this 20 something years ago. The, the red nail is based on a 70 penny nail it's five sixteenths diameter it's seven inches long it's cold rolled steel which is very springy it doesn't want to bend and when you do bend it it doesn't want to stay bent um and you have to bend it using their equipment which is minimal protection wraps nothing allowed but chalk and you have to do it in under a minute and if you do that you get your name put on this roster and i'm looking at this roster of people like john brookfield and Pat Povolitis and all these other incredible steel benders. And I'm like, I want to get in on that. So I decided to start training for it. And this was when I was figuring out how to use my imagination and to do mental rehearsal as effectively as possible um, through reading various different, a lot of the stuff that helped me with that was very metaphysical, esoteric stuff, like, you know, from, uh, Wallace Waddles and Neville Goddard and all these like obscure um, mystic places, but also from a, from a Western science standpoint, stuff like a book that uh, Marty turned me on to from uh, Cogler about what's it called? Uh, Clearing the path to victory. You know, there's some yeah. very, very effective um, visualization, mental rehearsal stuff in, in that book as well. So I started putting that into practice and I had constructed this scene in my mind where um, I was bending the red nail and there was a group of people sitting in front of me. I didn't know who they were. couldn't really see their faces. And um, when I got done bending it, I held it up and I got a thumbs up from my referee because you had to do it in under one minute. Um, and I got the thumbs up that the time was good on that. So I'm, I'm able to bend the nail. I'm working on it, um, gradually reducing padding because that's, that's a whole different story. You know, the, this, it takes about um, 440, 450 pounds of force to bend this thing. And that's, you know, all expressed through the hands and the wrists, um, from the body. So, uh, um, it's very taxing that way. Right. Um, and the padding makes a difference because of just pain tolerance, not because it gives you much leverage or anything like that. But so I'm, I'm rehearsing this in my mind and I'm doing it over and I'm doing it over and I'm doing it over and I'm started making it my practice to do it when I was falling asleep. 
Um, but two different times during this mental rehearsal, as I was doing the physical training leading up to, to doing this, I snapped myself out of meditation state because I started sneezing. And the reason I started sneezing was from sniffing imaginary chalk dust that was floating around in the air because I was chalked up really heavily and I would clap my hands right before I started the, the bend and this chalk dust would float into the air in my, in my imagination. And so I snorted this chalk dust two different times and started sneezing and knocked myself out of meditation from this imaginary chalk dust. Interject something really quick. Sure thing. So Dave sent us this great little book, superhuman you, and with it is a wrench. And the sucker is bent into a U, right? Yeah. And I'm like looking at this and I'm, I pick it up and I'm feeling it. And I'm going, I don't think I could bend that if I put one end in a vice. Okay? <laughs> and then just tugged in the other end. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't bend this thing. Yeah. Right? So, so here, Stacy comes in and Stacy knows Dave. So I said, Stacy, look what Whitley bent. And she goes, with his mind. <laughs> he has that wrench is on his website. And I said, and I said, next year. Just with his mind. Yeah. With his well, mind. In, a, in a very real sense, the answer to that is yes, because the mind controls the body, right? You know, he's, he's working towards it, Stacy. He's working towards it. Okay? Dave. Right now, his hands and wrists, but eventually, like the amazing Creston, it's going to be just his mind. Okay? <laughs> Dave, you got to be able to close that number four gripper, right? The number four? No, I've never closed that one. Um, no? I know, I know very few people that have. That is such a, a, a specific skill. Yeah, it's yeah. such a weird angle. That's not, I mean, come on. Uh, no, yeah. I've... I've I've never certified on the number three, but, um, I've, you know, there's video floating around on the internet of me doing sets of two and three with the number three. I just grippers never really fascinated me the way, um, bending steel and leverage lifting did. Yeah, um, I was going to ask if, uh, Joe Kenny had any influence on you, if, if you had done any of that kind of stuff. Uh, Would no, not really. I mean, okay. I, I, I have read and seen video and, and understand the way that Joe Kenny trained to be the first person to close that number four. Right. And it looked to me like every single session he would go and try to kill himself is the way he described it. And, and I, I know that's not sustainable and it's not yeah, good man. for long-term health. And so while I'm doing stuff that involves my hands and fingers, I still want to be able to play the guitar and I yeah. still want to, you know, and I want to be, <laughs> yes. And, pick and Jim a, pick up a yes. nickel off a table. Yeah. Jim, have you ever tried that number four? Uh, yes, I've tried it. No, I can't close them. Yeah, up. yeah. I used to sell those grippers, and uh, you know, I had a number four, and I was like, "Oh my god, who the hell can close this thing?" I mean, you know, you can't even hardly move it, let all alone Brad. Move. All of Brad, Brad, and all his brothers are captains of Crush. They mm -hmm. do the number three. They can rub the handles together and all that. I'm not sure what they can do with number four. There's probably one of them is probably close to getting that. Even, sure. even the number three is incredible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. oh my God. Well, and there's there's a difference between being able to close it and then certifying on it because they yeah. make the conditions really difficult. Um, I know probably four or five people personally who have actually closed it, but not under this, the official certification um, 
conditions, you know? Right. It's about hand position and all that, right? And you can't turn it upside down or do anything like that. It's no, be... no, it, it has to be a, a specific way. Um, I have a number four gripper and I've never, never really pursued it. Uh, but what I did use it for is there's a position when you're short bending, like you would with a nail or with the red nail or whatever, um, the, um, where you're crushing it together in front of your chest yeah. that, um, is very much like holding a gripper. It's like one hand is in a fist and the other hand is covering it much like a, an old Kung Fu salute. Yeah. And so you're using the grip of, you know, the flexing the fingers and crushing with one hand and pushing it in to the palm of the other hand to, to bring the rest of your upper body into it. I would use the number four gripper to get stronger in that position, like right. close right. the number four gripper with two hands that way and see how long I could hold it shut, which was, you know, two or three seconds um, and not hold it shut with one hand, hold it shut with both hands on it and my full body engaged in it. I don't want to, mm -hmm. I don't want to say that. Yeah. I Isometric. Isometric. Yeah, definitely. What's, and what's some of the, I found that to be really valuable for like, tendon and ligament strengthening yeah. and also for conditioning the skin on the palms for those kind of forces because if you've got soft hands um and you start doing steel bending where you're you know literally ramming a piece of steel even though it's padded into the palm of your hand um you can get blisters and and all sorts of problems like that too if you don't yeah, that, approach it that's why that's why that's why i never took it up yes yeah, yes too, yeah yeah. Um, what's some of the other cool stuff that you've done? Like you roll up frying pans and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. the frying pan is actually one of the, one of the things that looks really difficult, but it's pretty easy. Um, and if you watch anybody that's done it, that doesn't know what they're doing, they'll roll it into like a taco shell, you know, <laughs> they're just kind of, kind of folding the ends towards each other. What I like to do with it is roll it up tight, like a burrito. Yeah, like one, of, that, one of the yeah. things that one of the things that um, Dan Sinoza, do you know Dan? Oh, yeah. Dan and I both. Yeah, yeah I know yeah, yeah, yeah. Known Dan, Dan for years. Dan came over to our house one time and grabbed a pan off the wall and rolled it up. And Stacy <laughs> said, what are That's you great. doing? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have Gillingham do that next time he goes to your house. <laughs> yeah. that, that's actually not a terribly difficult feat to do for most people, especially if you've you know got a, a strong like wrist roller type grip you know like a, a, a really good deadlifter should be able to do that without without much yeah, training well, he, he he dan didn't pick out one of the cast iron pans well cast iron doesn't bend it breaks that's the issue there <laughs> what about um now there's a technique to the phone book because uh I, you know my 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 stepdad um mm -hmm. He used to do this. He used to rip a big phone book in half and he was no weightlifter or anything. And he showed me the technique. You got to like pinch it together and like twist it a certain way and then begin to slowly rip. I mean, describe that. Well, there's a couple of different ways to do the phone book. There's what you're describing, which is a trick. Like I've, I've literally had, um, 120 pound women be able to rip a phone book using this trick technique, which wow. is one of two reasons I stopped doing phone books and shows one is it's a really, uh, the, the, the uneducated person doesn't know that there's a legitimate way and a fake way to do it. And yeah. once they find out that there's a fake way, then everything you did was fake. Yeah. And you're just a magician yeah. at that point. The other reason is all the phone books are gone. 
you know? Yeah, they don't make them anymore. You got to rip your phone. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, you get a phone book from like Chicago or Dallas or something. It was three inches thick and, you know, take two minutes to rip it in half. And now it's, you know, it's a pamphlet. But the the trick technique that you're talking about, you set it up in such a way that you get little pockets of air between the pages. And then you rip it one page at a time from one side to the other, even though you're holding the entire book at, and and it's hard to describe without without showing you the legitimate way to do it is to square everything up, make sure that there's no air in between the pages and then just squeeze and pull. And you can look at a phone book that's been ripped and tell which way it was done because the trick way it's very jagged and Mm -hmm. the legitimate way to do it. It looks almost like it was cut with a paper cutter. It's just a straight line. Yeah. What's, what's the trick you're most proud of and what are you working on for the future? The feet that I'm most proud of, there's a couple of them as far as steel bending. There is a bar that is colloquially known as the Goliath bar. It's a half inch thick, inch and a half wide, four feet long piece of steel. And it's, it's brutal, brutal. And I've done a couple of those over the years. And what do you bend it over your, your knee, your neck? I mean, what do you, what do you wrap um, that sucker in? Okay. Imagine a Jefferson deadlift. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So the bar is running right. You put it on your gonoids? No, I put it just to the side of that. <laughs> your what? <laughs> my gonoids. No, I, I suck those up into my belly. Um, and um, I put it right where the uh, right where the hip bone right right at the gluteal crease, right where your butt cheek turns into your hamstring. Oh my and God. and that's the sweet spot. And there's there's a hard little spot of bone that I sink into it. Oh. And I. Um, pull with my left hand and I brace it with my right hand against the other leg and I get it bent to about 90 degrees there, hopefully on that first pull. And then I'll hook it with, I'm running out of room to, to pull. I'm at the end of the range of motion. So the thing that I started doing um, that just came to me is I would hook my elbow around the end of it and do the same motion again. It's like a, a lateral twisting spinal flexion thing. And that gets it close enough that I can either, um, put my left hand on my left hip crease and my right hand on my shoulder and crush it down that way. Or I can put it between my thighs and crush it down that way. Oh man. The other bar that I've bent in that style that I'm really proud of is a 30, 34 inch three eighths inch thick by two inch wide, which was, um, I think requires more force to bend, but it was easier for me shorter, to bend. Right? If, yeah, it's shorter. You say 38? 34. 34. So it's not even three feet. No, not quite. Oh, wow. Um, but I, I'm actually stronger bending that one in that position because um, with you want to grab the bar as close to the ends as you can. Um, and so with a four-foot bar, I'm kind of stretching outside of what's a, a natural place for me to be with my arm length. With the 34-inch one. Same it, technique. Yeah, same technique. Um, but with the, the shorter bar, it fits my body better. Right, right. So proud of that. Um, a feat that I that I put together myself. It's not it's not like a completely original feat, but it's a a combination feat that I had never seen anyone do before I started doing it is taking a sledgehammer, um, and a kettlebell and put the kettlebell in front of me. Like I was going to do, you know, clean and press with it. And the hammer is vertical with the head resting on the floor, slightly behind my feet to my side. And I'll hold the hammer 
with one hand, hold the kettlebell with the other hand and clean both of them at the same time, which is a weird movement because the kettlebell's in front and it has to travel back and then up and the hammer's behind me and it has to travel up in a completely different arc. So you've got these two different things that you're controlling independently that both of them don't want to go where you're sending them. Once I get it in this rack position, I would press the kettlebell overhead and extend my arm out to the side with the hammer in it and then lower the hammer down, touch my nose or forehead, take it back yeah. up and then retrace my steps back down. So I was able to take what I was, what I was fond of with kettlebell training and what I was in love with, with leverage lifting from Slim the Hammer Man and put those together into a signature feat. My That's best correct. weight on that ever was a 48 kilo kettlebell and a 20 pound sledgehammer. You have to have a high pain tolerance for this, this kind of stuff. Um, only if it's only if it slips and hits you in the face. Or yeah, I mean, with the bending, I know you have to use padding. I think you wrap leather around there and, and sure. things like that. But some of this has got to hurt. Some of it does hurt, but it that's part of the conditioning that goes along with the strength and conditioning that is specific to doing feats of strength. One of the things that you have to condition is the toughness of your skin and your palms. You have to condition the toughness of your bones. You know, one of the feats that I do, I haven't done it in a while, so I wouldn't like run out and do it right now. But one of the feats that I've done many times is taking a coconut, laying it on top of a concrete block, hitting it with a hammer fist and smashing it to pieces. You don't just walk up to that and start doing it. Just like you don't put a 500 pound barbell on your back the first day and expect to do anything except die, you know? Um, it, it was specific iron palm training along with, again, breathing exercises and mental focus that, that actually trained very easy to hit very hard. So after a while, it's, it's, it's the consistency over time that makes it so that what used to hurt doesn't hurt and what used to bruise you up or, or damage you doesn't damage you anymore. It doesn't make you sore anymore. You know, it's like when you, when you start lifting, if you're brand new, no matter what you do, you're going to be sore. But, yeah. you know, six months later, you're moving 50% yeah, more adapt. weight you and adapt. not even thinking yeah. about it. You know, you, you so you adapt yeah. to it. Yeah. If uh, if we were to invent a time machine, would you recommend that we learn all this stuff first? I mean, can you pick up women with this kind of stuff doing this? Do, do, do the ladies like this, uh, this brute strength? Yeah. Do you go into a bar and just say, hey, yeah, well, who's got a nail? Like, I can't do it now because I'm married, but I mean, you know, if there's a way to go back, should I learn this first? Well, I was married before I was ever a strong man, so I've never attempted wow. to, to like, <laughs> pull chicks with it or anything. But I have many, many times in shows or at events um, pick, literally picked up women over my head in a one-arm press. <laughs> it doesn't count. No, it's <laughs> Or there's a feat that I do that I that Dennis Rogers actually um, originated. You take a, a human being and lay them across your arms, you know, much like you would a, a, a zercher squat kind of yeah. thing, and then hold them out, hold your hands out in front and rip a deck of cards that way. So, wow. you know, you, you can pick up a girl that way. I'm just interested some... in why, why did this appeal to you? No question, it takes tons of strength versus traditional lifting or traditional strongman. Um, traditional lifting is something I've always been into and, and was fun, but something about it, it really was that, that I can narrow it down to that one day seeing Dennis bend that wrench and me thinking that's just not something humans are supposed to be able to do. I have to learn how to do this. You know, yeah. um, I was never very interested in competitive, the competitive aspects of anything, you know, like, right. 
And I know that that's, that's absolutely one of the best ways to get good at something is to go compete against people you've never met before. Um, but I just wasn't at that point in my life. If, if I'd gotten involved in, in powerlifting, for example, when I was in my late teens or my twenties, I probably would have wanted to be very competitive with it. But for me, it's always been much more of a, of a, just a personal development meditative thing strength training yeah. is and and right. you know going back to what we were talking about earlier with those sustained sets when you're 20 mm -hmm. minutes into a 30 minute set you're in a place that's very similar to to sitting still and breathing you know mentally so for yeah. me it was never about anything competitive like that it's always just been about what else can i do that would be fun and then right. when i decided that i wanted to perform because you know, that extroverted kid with the stutter that wound up playing guitar for a living still wants to get in front of people, still wants to, to brighten people's day up and, and have that kind of, of entertainment interaction there. Um, I put that together with what I had been learning and practicing about accessing parts of your mind that you may not even realize that are there. And it, it turned into a whole thing of spreading a message, which sounds kind of, kind of goofy and kind of cheesy, but for me, it's, that's the honest truth. Um, if, if I can go from being a kid with a horrible stutter, throwing up before he had to do a book report to, um, and being weak and out of shape to, to being able to do the feats that I do and, and hold the, the attention of an audience and speak right. eloquently. And occasionally I'll trip up and, and I'll actually stutter on stage and I'll just tell people, did you hear that? That's the little kid with the stutter. He's mm. still there. I just don't let him run the show anymore. Mm. So, so it's all about that kind of thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good example of how you need to get out of your comfort zone in life. If you really want to go where you're supposed to be, you know, where you're supposed to, where your destiny uh, ultimately lies, you know, yeah, you gotta, I you have gotta a, go where it's uncomfortable. I have a slightly different take on the comfort zone than a lot of, of strength guys or people who, you know, do motivational speaking type stuff. You know, we talk about breaking through your limits and getting out of the comfort zone and all of that kind of stuff. I'm very much, um, driven by the idea that if it's outside of my comfort zone, rather than force myself out of my comfort zone, what if I simply make my comfort zone bigger to encompass that, you know, and, okay. and, and there's a direct influence from, from so many different strength coaches, including Marty, you know, you don't, the, the idea of training the way that um, someone like Mike Mincer would recommend doesn't make sense to me because you go in and you completely destroy yourself. And then it takes you days and days to recover. Right. Um, the approach that, that truly strong people that I've encountered use is, Okay, what's our target date? When are we? When do we need to access maximum? Okay, what was our previous best maximum? Okay, what's about sixty or seventy percent of that? Because it's comfortable, and let's get stronger, and and expand that comfort zone so that by the time we get to the the end, what would have been an, a ninety percent effort at the beginning is more like a seventy-five or eighty percent effort now. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of scattered in the way I'm describing this, but my, my whole idea behind it is if you say that you push past your limits and you're talking physically and you didn't get hurt, that wasn't a physical limit because by definition to exceed your limit means that something has to break by definition, right? If you redline your car motor and exceed its, its capacity, then it breaks. I'm more interested in expanding capacity 
Right. So the limitation that you ran into was some, some BS from your own mind that you put on this thing and you didn't actually break past a physical limit. What you did is you recognized your own mental shortcoming. So if you recognize that, then you can embrace that and be like, okay, this wasn't what I thought it was. It's actually easier than I thought it was going to be. Let me get really comfortable doing this thing. Same thing with cold exposure, right? You don't jump in a frozen lake for 15 minutes on your first day and expect to survive. You know, like ripping a deck of cards in half is a, the perfect example that I use with this. Um, when I first started doing that, I was not strong enough to rip a deck of cards in half, but I could rip half a deck. I could rip 26 cards fairly easily. And so what I did was over the course of six months, I was training two or three times a week, ripping cards. I would add a single card each week. And in six months I had doubled to a full deck pretty much without ever noticing. And I believe that that is what is called creeping incrementalism. Yes, sir. Mm. All right. So what's, uh, what's in the future, buddy? What's in the future for me, the rest of this day is I'm going to go hang out with my three-year-old and do fun stuff with him which is fantastic because he's got his own little two kilo kettlebell that he lifts and he wants to go out and drive nails into a board and bend stuff. And I give him single cards and he rips them in half, you know, he's three. So we're catching Don't on show him that. how to roll the pans up. Yeah. Yeah. We won't do that yet. <laughs> That'll be um, a mess. And then this weekend I'm teaching a um, Wim Hof method workshop in Nashville. Um, the um, bigger picture of what's going on with me right now is um Shows are starting to pick back up. My entire year of 2020 got canceled because of the pandemic. And I only did two shows last year where I was doing, you know, 15 or 20 in a year. So um, I'm potentially have a couple things coming up with that this year. And then everything else is all centered around my um, online coaching, which is geared toward um, the information that's in the book, Superhuman You, how to use your mind to develop whatever your inherent superpower is, which doesn't necessarily equate to, certainly doesn't equate to flying and shooting laser beams out of your eyes and doesn't necessarily equate to, to strength training physically for most people. But the idea of a superpower is there's something that is going to make you feel fulfilled and make the world a better place. Let's focus on that. And the mental training aspect of what I do from a strongman perspective and from a strength training perspective, um, I've looked at the overlap there to other goal achievement um, ideas and, and, and helping people to, you know, start their business if, or whatever their thing is that they want to do. So it's taking these mental training aspects and applying it toward other goals. That's the the center of what I'm doing now as a coach. I like that. We always talk about that, how, how we apply this thinking and, um, um, you know, just mental uh, strength towards other parts of our lives, whether it's business or parenting or, or whatever. So I'm, yeah, and I'm it's really important because, because through things like strength training or breath work or cold exposure, you learn what works and what doesn't work right. for yourself. And you're able to take those things and um, apply them, th that logic to, to, to other areas of your life. You know, if you want to learn how to build a website, for example, um, there's a step-by-step -step progressive process that goes along with that. And, and I, I enter into a new thing like that with that beginner's mind of what is the one step that I need to take today? Because, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Yeah, we all know that, but really the journey of a thousand miles is made up of thousands of single steps. So like, right. where can I add weight to the bar? Right. You know, how can I make this uh, imperceptibly more difficult? 
I think you've got, uh, what, three websites? Why don't you go ahead and uh, give the info on those? Um, I've got a bunch of different websites, but um, yeah, the, the three that you're talking about, probably um, superhumanubook.com, that book that Marty was talking about earlier. If you go there, um, I send that out to people free. I just ask that they pay for shipping and handling so that I break even on it. It's like 10 bucks. So superhumanubook.com, if you want one of those, if you want to know more about the personal development coaching stuff, it's superhumanucoaching.com. Uh, my main speaker website is irontamer.com. And for the strength fans that are out here listening to this, um, if you go to oldtimestrongmanuniversity.com, I've got some information on there about um, feats of strength and some basic um, how to rip cards technique stuff, how to bend nails, how to get your mind right, um, principles of leverage and and just the basic physics behind it. Because like any feat of strength is is like – um, like a martial art. I, what I want to do in any martial art is I want to take whatever is strongest with me and I want to direct it toward the weakest point of my opponent as much as I can, right? And, and everything else is, uh, about martial art is commentary at that point, right? What's my hardest punch? What's your soft, softest target? What's, what's your most vulnerable joint? What's my strongest joint lock, right? Well, the same thing applies to to feats of strength where is my leverage the best and where's the weakest point in this steel or this deck of cards you know and it's maximizing leverage and lifting it's the same thing what is the best position for the bar on my back when i'm squatting what is optimal head position what's optimal foot position you know figuring all that sort of stuff out so i have some stuff that is specifically geared toward feats of strength that's for free there explaining those concepts um at oldtimestrongmanuniversity.com all right well, very cool. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate uh, having you on. This has been great. And for anybody out there listening, you know, if you enjoy our podcast, please share the link. This has been a real good one. Uh, give us a review. And, uh, you know, also check out Marty's weekly column, Raw with Marty Gallagher at Iron Company. You can find his latest articles in the coaching trenches, ordinary folks obtaining extraordinary gains. You can also visit Marty on Instagram at the Marty Gallagher and he and his wife, Stacy also have a website called functionalstrength.org. That's functional hyphen strength.org. Uh, if you're in the market for uh, equipment for your garage gym, your school, your military base, whatever you need, check us out. Ironcompany.com been in the business since 97. One of the first companies online ever to, uh, to sell fitness equipment to the public via the World Wide Web, uh, flooring solutions, strength equipment, free weights, whatever you need. And then Jim Steele, he's got articles that can be found at uh, Iron Company as well. He does a, a monthly column for us on there. And currently he's got, uh, it's called Strategies for Sticking to Your Fitness Goals. It's a real good one. It's up there now. Go check it out. His website is bossbarbell.com. That's basbarbell.com. Right. So, if, if, um, if I may interject one quick thing. Yes, sir. You're talking about Marty's uh, articles. Um, yep. The, the would-be strength aficionado who is feeling stuck, if you're not reading Marty's stuff about the mental aspect of how to do all this stuff, you are not getting maximal effectiveness in your training. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to put more weight on the bar and all that sort of stuff, but Marty's information – and articles that I've read about the mental aspect of all this has been pivotal for my development. So well, I encourage, I, 
I, I encourage everyone who's feeling stuck to go address that area of their training with Marty. Yeah, he's all right. He's I all right. totally agree. And he's very much into the, the mind connection and meditation. He's got a lot of great meditation articles and, uh, and everything. So they're all on our site. He's been writing for us for years. So just get on there and whatever you're looking for, he's written about it. That's true. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, this Thank has you been so much awesome. for having me on. All right, Dave. Thanks, man. It was right, great. Thank you, Iron Tamer. Thank you so much. All right. All right, David. We'll talk again. We'll have you on again, buddy. Bye. I'll be